Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It's a massive week in sports. Houston and Philadelphia are at it in the World Series. Tennessee plays Georgia in the college football game of the year. NFL games, basketball, hockey, all of it is going on. And BetOnline has you covered with all the props, odds, promos, and parlays for this week. Use the link in this episode to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you use the promo code BLEAVE. B-L-E-A-V. Bet online, where the game starts. Hey, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody. It's another NFL Monday here on the Take It Easy podcast. It's week eight. We've got football talk coming at you today. Thank you for stopping in, however and whenever it is you may be stopping in. Leave some downloads, leave some five-star reviews, leave some comments. Do all the great stuff to support our dreams here on this show We are going to talk about a bunch of the NFL games from the weekend. We're not going to talk about Broncos-Jaguars because every NFL Monday is another NFL Monday until that makes us one week closer to Nathaniel Hackett getting fired by the Denver Broncos. So Buffalo's on bye this week. Kansas City's on bye this week. The Baltimore Ravens played on Thursday. Kind of an interesting game on Thursday. Not a whole lot to take away from it, but it was an interesting game. Baltimore won. They could have, should have, would have been 7-1 and one at this point. So since the three best teams in football were either on bye or didn't play on Sunday, we're going to take some time today to look at some of the, shall we say, other teams in the NFL. Kind of take some deep dives into a couple of teams. I guess the other elite team in the NFL would be the 49ers, but we kind of already did the 49ers show last week if you want to check that out on Thursday with Juju Talk Sports on Mondays. NFL Monday for 40 minutes was on the Niners last week. Uh, We talked about the breaking news of the McCaffrey trade (laughs) Friday, but not this last Friday, the Friday before that. So we've already done three Niners podcasts, so I'm going to let that be We're going to take some time to talk about the others in the NFL this week. And that begins with the only other team that is good. As we talked about with Joe Camo and Walter Mitchell, if you were playing the name six great teams in the NFL this year, I could probably get you four and a half. And since Kansas City, Buffalo, Baltimore, San Francisco are either on by, played on Thursday, or have been talked about, let's talk about the Eagles. Uh, The Eagles played the Steelers. Eagles kicked ass. And I wanted to talk about this from the Pittsburgh standpoint because I wanted to follow up on something we did back on NFL Monday 4. Our opening topic from NFL Monday 4 was saying that the Pittsburgh Steelers season was over. 
And the the talking point across the league for the first month of the year is, do you play Mitch Trubisky or do you play Kenny Pickett? Because it's the annual tradition of, hey, we have a first-round quarterback, but he's going to sit behind a quarterback who clearly the team does not view as a long-term viable option at the position. Uh, this happened when the Houston Texans started TJ Yates, uh, when Tyrod Taylor started over Josh Allen, and then Nathan Peterman started over Josh Allen. This happened when Tyrod Taylor started one game over Justin Herbert, and it was clearly stupid for them to do that. So every year we have this conversation, and the thing I always say, uh, it happened last year with Garoppolo and Trey Lance. It happened last year with Andy Dalton and uh, Justin Fields. It happened with Ryan Fitzpatrick and Tua. Like We always sit rookie quarterbacks because we think that that is uh, something that the NFL has concocted, and I believe that you should start the rookie quarterback right away and give them the time to grow and develop if you believe that that quarterback could be your quarterback for the next five to ten years. Which, if you're drafting a quarterback in the first round, I assume that you plan on that person being your quarterback for the next five to ten years. We can have different conversations about, like, Malik Willis with the Titans, who got to play his first game against the Texans this week, which was because Tannehill got injured, but I'm of the belief that Malik Willis should have been playing over Tannehill and the Titans. I mean, the Titans are probably going to win the AFC South and lose in the wildcard game, but the Titans should have been prioritizing following the Eagles model of of maximizing value while it's the highest and selling. Now they've won five games in a row since then, but point still stands. I think the Titans should have torn it down and given Malik Willis the chance to prove himself uh, even if he's not the better quarterback than Tannehill Tannehill's not going to be on the Titans after this season and Malik Willis has an opportunity to be their quarterback for the next two to three years even though they picked him in the third round but basically when we're talking about first round quarterbacks and, and whether that's the five from last year or this year's example which is Kenny Pickett play the rookie instead of the, the guy who's not going to be on the team next year, like Tyrod Taylor was twice, like Nathan Peterman, like TJ Yates, like Mitchell Trubisky with the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Steelers don't plan to have Mitchell Trubisky on the team past this season, and I don't think the Falcons plan to have Marcus Mariota on the team past this season, but they're playing Mariota over Desmond Ritter because, one, Mariota hasn't played that poorly, and two, Desmond Ritter... I don't think that the Falcons think Desmond Ritter is is their future quarterback. I think they kind of just picked him as a backup. Um, so four weeks ago, I said the Pittsburgh Steelers season is over. When they started 1-3 and three on the season, Steelers season is done. There is no playoff run impending for Pittsburgh. They did make the switch from, pick, from Trubisky to Pickett that week. Um, And it was the correct decision because the thing I said is if your offense is going to suck, suck with the rookie, give him the chance to make mistakes and grow. And the thing I said at the time is that I believe Mike Tomlin looked at his team and genuinely evaluated them as a playoff team this year. I think he walked into the season and genuinely evaluated the Steelers as a playoff team and then flipped that focus around week four, week five, or perhaps came to the point that Kenny Pickett gives them a better chance to win football games, which... Now that we have four games under our, or I guess three games, because Pickett missed one with the injury. Now that we have three games under our belt, I still have no idea whether Kenny Pickett gives them a better chance to win. But there's no way that we were going to know after three games, especially given how poorly constructed the Pittsburgh Steelers' offense has been so far. And a big part of that is offensive line. Part of it is Najee Harris being injured and not having a great season. But the Pittsburgh Steelers have a bad offense. And... 
I said after week four, when we were doing our NFL Monday show and talking a lot about Kenny Pickett, that Pittsburgh should finish two and six by the end of week eight. Because at the time, they had a four-game stretch of Buffalo, Tampa, Miami, and Philadelphia, which is two teams that are elite, Buffalo and Philadelphia, a playoff team in Tampa, and a very good team in Miami. And lo and behold, they finished 2-6. and six. Just wanted to acknowledge that I said they'll probably be 2-6, and six, and they finished exactly 2-6. and six. And, and they're 2-6, and six, and there's no chance they're going to make the playoff. So where Pittsburgh stands right now is that this season is about draft positioning and this pick is about getting a blue chip player or two to build around Kenny Pickett if you believe that Kenny Pickett is your quarterback for the next five to ten years which maybe they do maybe they don't they drafted him with a first round pick in 2000 uh, last year so maybe they do believe that he's going to be a long-term quarterback but just because you pick someone in the first round doesn't necessarily believe mean you can change your course of action within a year I was thinking the Dolphins could have should have would have taken another quarterback over Tua when they had the number three pick the Cardinals did take another quarterback over Josh Rosen they could totally change their course of action season to season sometimes the the best way to uh, operate is to acknowledge your mistakes early so that you don't double down on your mistakes by perhaps passing on the quarterback that you actually want. Um, but the most likely scenario is that Pittsburgh is going to get a blue chipper. They're going to be in a position where they take best player available, whether that's an offensive lineman, whether it's a defensive player like Will Anderson. They're going to be a, a top five to seven pick team, and they're going to be a best player available pick. And the reason I find this so unique is that Pittsburgh is about to have their worst season in the recent franchise history. Now, you can go back to like the 80s and 90s when they had like a bunch of bad seasons before Bill Cowher got there at the end of Chuck Knoll's time. But we're talking about 35 years since Pittsburgh has been in this position. And it's a totally unique situation because there is no precedent for what the decision-making is going to be for Pittsburgh. And I find that to be an incredibly interesting situation to find them because maybe Pittsburgh ends up deciding that they are going to pivot and pick a new quarterback. Maybe they're going to pick an offensive lineman and maybe they're going to reach on another position. Maybe they're going to get a a top pick and, and a star edge rusher or a star linebacker is going to fall to them. But Pittsburgh is in this unique position where they're going to have a losing record for the first time in 20 years, and they're going to follow the pattern that everyone with a rookie quarterback does, which is it's going to be two years before you're back to a level of contention that you're satisfied with. I don't know if there's anything Pittsburgh can do to quick fix this team and make them Super Bowl caliber good, but I think to get back to where they were in 2020 or 2021 where they're losing wildcard games, I think it's going to take a bunch of years to get there if they get there at all. And I think that's unique because we've never seen Pittsburgh in this situation, which similar to what's happening to Oklahoma in college football gives us a unique situation to see how they react. And by the way, just to follow up on something I said, like when I say could draft a quarterback, that has nothing to do with Kenny Pickett. That has nothing to do with the evaluation process of Kenny Pickett and what he's done as quarterback of the Steelers or what he's going to continue to do as quarterback of the Steelers because there's still nine games left in the season for him to play. 
Kenny Pickett is going to build out a sample size as a starting quarterback in the NFL. It's going to happen with a bad offense and a, a really bad offensive line. Like, Kenny Pickett got sacked six times against the Philadelphia Eagles. He got sacked six times by Philadelphia, and it's just impossible to evaluate any quarterback on such a small sample size, but we already know that Pittsburgh didn't really evaluate Kenny Pickett as a star quarterback. He was kind of a high second-round pick who happened to be available to them at 20 because they weren't going to have a second-round pick until the very end of the second round. So Pittsburgh reached on Kenny Pickett, and I'm sure that they believe he can be the long-term quarterback of the Steelers when they drafted him, and they're playing him now for similar reasons. I'm saying that the organization of the Steelers is now in a different place than they were back in even August, nonetheless going back to April when they signed Trubisky and drafted Kenny Pickett. The Steelers organization is in a totally different place because, like I said before, I believe that Mike Tomlin genuinely believed that going into the season the Steelers would be a playoff team. And they've had an above-average defense and a bad offense, and because T.J. Watt's been hurt and because the defense is ranked 12th in DVOA instead of a top-five defense like they've been the last couple of years when they've made the playoffs, because of that, the Pittsburgh Steelers are in a place where they're not good enough to... I mean, they've, they've had a tough schedule and some tough breaks, but Pittsburgh's not good enough to compete against anyone in the AFC. And so because of that, they're going to have top pick this year. They're going to have probably not as high a pick as this year. This year's probably the highest draft pick of their rebuild. And so if this is going to be the highest pick of your rebuild, you have to hit on a top player because theoretically this is your best chance to land a star. And obviously Pittsburgh drafted... T.J. Watt with the 30th pick in the draft. They got Deontay Johnson with a third-round pick. They got Claypool with a second-round pick. Uh, they got Devin Bush with a high first-round pick. They traded a first-rounder for Minka Fitzpatrick. Like They find ways to get valuable players, and I trust that Mike Tomlin is able to do more with less on defense because he's one of these Hall of Fame coaches that we know adds value on the defensive side of the ball. Even when he has lesser personnel, they still find a way to have very, very good defenses almost every year. And so as an organization, you're just looking at this and saying everything is on the table because your organization is in a different place than you were even back in August. So I'm not saying like, oh, Kenny Pickett is trash and they should be looking at another quarterback. I'm saying that the organizational philosophy for Pittsburgh at this point is you can pick a quarterback, you can pick a linebacker, you can pick an offensive tackle, whatever you choose, that is going to be the foundation of what the next version of the Steelers is going to be. Because it's going to take two years to turn this ship around for Pittsburgh just to get back to where they were in 2020 or just to get back to where they were in 2019. It's going to take a while for them to get back to that place. And if they hit on this pick this year, it's going to make it a little bit easier to kind of make that transition. Maybe that also involves trading some players at the deadline. I know they were trying to get a godfather offer for Chase Claypool, and I'm sure some of those defensive players were were on the market. But, you know, maybe that's part of the rebuilding process, but those picks this year are going to be instrumental for whatever the next three years of the Pittsburgh Steelers is going to start to look like. And if you don't think Kenny Pickett 
is your quarterback for the next five to ten years not whether or not he should be because they drafted him in the first round it's do you believe that Kenny Pickett will be your quarterback for the next five to ten years and if the answer to that is no that's okay you have an opportunity to pivot if that answer is I don't know just evaluate whoever the best players available are once it gets to your pick and evaluate kind of the the way that you want to build this thing out over the next couple years by getting some blue chip players. So if the answer is, I don't know whether Kenny Pickett will be our quarterback for the next five to 10 years, leave every option on the table. If you feel like the answer is no, we probably shouldn't have picked him in the first round, then of course every option is on the table. Unless the answer is yes, and obviously I say Mike Tomlin has more information than I, but I don't know how someone could say yes on Pickett at this point. Unless the answer is a definitive yes, then you leave all the options on the table. And all the options on the table means wait till you get to the draft process and evaluate who the best player available is once you get to your pick. And if that's a quarterback, if that's a linebacker, if that's an offensive tackle... I don't know exactly who it's going to be, and I'm sure this will be fascinating conversation once we get to that point of the draft process. When it comes to Pittsburgh, every option should be on the table because the organization is in a different place than they were even in August. And now we know they're going to have a top five to seven pick, and we know that their offense is bad for the fourth consecutive season. If you take 2019 where they were worst in the NFL, 2020 where they started 11 and 0 and that was the best of the teams with a bottom 10 offense. Last year's offense ranked 27th in the league. This year's offense is currently ranked 31st in I'm sorry, not 31st, 30th in the league according to Football Outsiders DVOA. So if they've had bottom 10 offenses for four straight years, maybe they prioritize picking an offensive player in the draft, but they've been picking offensive players the last few years and it just hasn't worked out. So Everything should be on the table for Pittsburgh as they spend the next two years being like any other team, which is going through the ebbs and flows of being a great team and then a not great team. And, you know, your defense drops off a little bit and you have one big injury to your star player. And uh, all of a sudden, all of those inefficiencies and problems you were able to mask for the last few years, they kind of expose you. And now you're sitting at two and six and Uh, Again, this is nothing to do with Kenny Pickett, just everything should be on the table for Pittsburgh unless you feel definitive, you have a definitive belief that Kenny Pickett is good enough to be your quarterback for the next five to ten years. Not that you want Pickett to be your quarterback for the next five to ten years. If you know for sure Pickett is good enough to be your quarterback and the evidence shows that, I think it's going to be difficult to get to that place and Pittsburgh should leave all of their options on the table as they work through the next four to five weeks or really next four to five months of the season because the season's gonna we're now in November uh, at least tomorrow is going to be November we're now into November the next three months are going to be about evaluating Pickett and giving him the opportunity to make mistakes and grow as the quarterback and then once you get to the offseason and you have that top seven pick leave all the options on the table and do the evaluation and make sure no matter what you get a blue chip player who will immediately enter and be a great player similar to what Kevon Thibodeau has done for the Giants or what Micah Parsons has done for the Cowboys. Those are the best case scenarios, but just getting a player like that is the most important thing for the Steelers. And if that happens to be a quarterback, it happens to be a quarterback. 
Just leave every option on the table as you work your way through a season that is about the development of Kenny Pickett, preserving the health of the team and the players that you want to be on the team long-term, like I assume Najee Harris. That's what the rest of this season is about for Pittsburgh. And it's just really interesting to watch because Pittsburgh's never been in this situation. Teams are in this situation every year. I've been saying the Titans should do this for the past few years. I think Denver's in this exact same place right now, and they just traded for Russell Wilson. Teams go through this every year. What's so unique about it is that Pittsburgh has never been through this. At least they've never been through it in the last 30 years, which if we're talking about the NFL 30 years ago versus the NFL now, most of the structures have changed, which makes this an unprecedented situation for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And that's what make, finds it. That's what makes it so interesting to me is that because it's unprecedented, we have no blueprint to know how the front office and how the leadership of the Pittsburgh Steelers is going to go about rebuilding this team over a two to three year project involving top draft picks. Shout out Miami Dolphins, the greatest football team that runs the ball goal to goal like no one's ever seen. Miami Dolphins are 5-3. and three. They beat Detroit. Again, I love this Detroit Lions team because if you're going to suck, suck like Detroit, which is we're going to score 30 points, we're going to give up 40 points, and we're going to lose. It's more fun that way. It's way more fun when they have like 45-40 shootouts against Seattle or 34-28 games against Miami. It's like classic Stafford Lions where they get out to a 14-0 lead, then give up four touchdowns, then they have to storm back from 14 down. It's way more fun that way. Back when we used to have the joke where it's like, don't ever bet on the Detroit Lions because... If betting on the Lions or Falcons is just hell. When you think they're going to win, they're going to lose. When you think they're going to lose, they cover the spread. Don't ever bet on Detroit because Detroit's going to have a game that's what what basically the Falcons used to be before the Falcons got boring, which was we're going to score 30, the other team's going to score 40, and that's how we're going to lose. Or both teams score in the 30s and you have a chaos game. But yeah, Detroit is uh, the worst team in the NFL actually still at this point, and Detroit is now going back to last season 3-19-1 in the Man-Campbell era, and Detroit is going to get a top pick in the draft. I guess I was going to talk about Miami. The one thing I have on Miami, and I was watching this game while at work, and uh, it, it was on the Red Zone channel. Every week I feel like I look up and, and Tyreek Hill has a stat line of, 12 catches, 188 yards, and zero touchdowns. 
that's what he had this week. It feels like he gets that every single week where it's just like, hey, Tyreek Hill is going to finish with 27 catches for 380 yards, and he's also going to have zero touchdowns. I don't know how that happens. Gasecki had a touchdown. Jalen Waddle had two touchdowns. Alec Ingold had a touchdown, but somehow Tyreek Hill did not have a touchdown this week. And the Miami Dolphins ended up beating Detroit 31 27. The point I had on Detroit, and I got I think at this point we're only gonna talk about Detroit the rest of the season if Detroit ends up in Kirk Cousins purgatory, which might happen. Jared Goff's done it before. I wouldn't be surprised if Detroit does it again, given that most of their games are like 31-27 or 45-35. Wouldn't surprise me if they end up in Kirk Cousins purgatory, but Detroit from an actual, I guess call this a eulogy for Detroit. This is kind of a good week to to loop this in. For the rest of the season, Detroit is playing for draft positioning. And they're not as bad as some of these other teams in the league. Detroit's in that group that I would classify as the worst team in the league that's not actively tanking. Um, but when they hired Matt, uh, Man Campbell... It was basically like, look, we're tearing this shit to the ground. The first move after hiring Man Campbell was trading Matthew Stafford for Jared Goff and two first-round picks. Man Campbell was not going to get any NFL head coaching job other than the Detroit job. And so if you're walking out of this year and Detroit gets a top pick in the draft, whether it's one, two, or three regardless, it means they're going to get one of those top quarterbacks. And if you're Detroit, who clearly needs a quarterback and clearly would draft a quarterback with those top picks, I think you look at Man Campbell and you say, thank you for your service. You have transitioned this franchise into the next era. We have all of these players that we have now acquired. Thank you for your time. Here is your $20 million buyout, and we're going to go hire a new coach now. And it's not that Man Campbell has done a bad job. It's just... He was never hired to be the long-term fix for Detroit. We actually talked about this when he first got hired, which is when you go into a teardown, the coach who begins the teardown rarely ever gets to see the end result because you can go hire someone who is more experienced, a better coach, shall we say, um, than I don't want to say experience like that matters when we're talking about coaching hiring. Sometimes you don't have to have a ton of experience to be a great coach, but the, the you can get a better coach once you have talented players and the promise of something better. And this, the example I've always pointed to is Brett Brown with the 76ers. Brett Brown was the one coach who joined the team during the tanking years and then got to see the tanking all the way through to the end. And he is the singular example that I've been pointing to in any sport where the person who tanks gets to see the results through. I mean, we joke about with the Houston Texans, they just keep hiring black coaches who they'll fire after a year. But Man Campbell's kind of in the same camp where he was never intended to be the long-term fix in Detroit. He was hired to be the transitional coach because literally no one else would take that job. Like, Man Campbell was the tight ends coach and offensive quality control guy for the Saints. He was the interim coach of the Miami Dolphins prior to that job. So Man Campbell was 
in essence, an interim coach. No one was like panning Man Campbell to be the head coaching hire for Detroit. It was just the best Detroit could do knowing that they were tearing this thing to the ground. And by the way, they did that exactly correctly. Like I said, they are 319-1 in the Man Campbell era. And that has been probably underperforming to the talent level that's on the team. And, and in all actuality, that's not the worst thing in the world because it means they get Aiden Hutchinson and Jeff Okuda and top draft picks that they can use along with the picks they got for Matthew Stafford and the picks they got for Darius Slay. Like, it's not the worst thing in the world that they've underperformed to the talent on the field because the whole point of this is to acquire better talent by tanking. And it's not tanking by intentionally losing games. It's tanking by putting a diminished product on the field. They knew this was the case when they traded Matthew Stafford. And two years later, they have results to show for it. They have Hutchinson. They have Jamison Williams. Amon Ross St. Brown was a guy who develops because they prioritized young players over veterans. You could point to Jeff Okuda, the last year of Matt Patricia being part of the rebuild, and the quarterback that they will probably take with a top pick in this year's draft. These are the benefits of tanking, is that you get all of these players, and it makes your job more desirable usually for whoever the next coach is going to be. I don't think Man Campbell has done a bad job. I think he's just been put in an impossible situation, and he's performed up to the level that the Detroit Lions expected. And so if you're Detroit, I think you just look at that and say, thank you for your time. We appreciate you and care for you. Here is your $20 million. You are fired. And I don't think there's anything Dan Campbell could have done to save his job. It's just the reality of the situation Detroit found themselves in. Bears still suck. The Bears still suck. The Bears still suck. The Bears still suck. The Bears still suck. They really, 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 really suck. Yes, the Bears still suck. All the ladies now. Okay, the Chicago Bears didn't actually play that bad. They just gave up 49 points to the Cowboys. They traded Robert Quinn last week. They know who they are. They know they're a tanking team. They weren't fooled by the fact that they happened to be 3-4 and four because they got a slop game against San Francisco. Like, Chicago knew who they were. They knew who their identity was. They traded Robert Quinn. They're tanking. They might trade another player by the time you listen to this podcast. They knew who they were. They played pretty good on offense. They just happened to give up 49 points to the Dallas Cowboys. The team I actually wanted to talk about, but I don't have a transition for either of them, is the New Orleans Saints. And I know we touched on this briefly with Morgan from Australia. Morgan's going to be on the show tomorrow, and unfortunately it was recorded before the Saints' victory, so we don't actually get Morgan from Australia praising the love for the Saints and the top five ranked offense of Andy Dalton, which again, I said coming into the season, I have absolutely no idea how to evaluate the New Orleans Saints offense. And I feel like I was absolutely correct in that judgment because the New Orleans Saints 
went from Jameis Winston to Andy Dalton. Alvin Kamara has missed two games this season. They're talking about trading Alvin Kamara, which we'll get more to in a, in a little bit, but they also have a top seven offense ever since Andy Dalton took over. They've been it's been like Buffalo, Kansas City, Seattle for some godforsaken reason, and then the Saints since Andy Dalton took over at quarterback. And I don't understand why that's the case. But I said coming into the season, I have no idea how to evaluate the Saints offense, and I was correct in that evaluation. The Saints offense has been incredibly stupid this season, and I am glad I didn't continue pretending that I understood any of it. This is the part I'm interested in with the New Orleans Saints. And coming out of this week, the Raiders and the Saints are two teams that I'm just fascinated by at this point because the Raiders are bad at football. And I don't even know if it's a McDaniels problem or if it's just that they've been really bad. I don't even know how to explain why it is that their record is what it is. Maybe if it were three wins like it should be because they should have beat the Cardinals. Like maybe if that's how it goes down, it's it's a little bit better for the Saints or for the Raiders. But the, the thing I'm interested in coming out of that game is so the Saints right now are five and three and they are the exact opposite team of what we thought. They are a great offensive team and they are a not great defensive team this season, or at least they're like a below average defensive team so far this year, but they've had a great offense. And I know that this whole week, Alvin Kamara has been floated around in trade rumors. And if you heard last week's NFL Monday show, that's what I talked about the Saints should do, is that if you're one of these teams that's not actively tanking, like Houston, we know is actively tanking, but they don't have any cool shit. Uh, Carolina, they're actively tanking. They've started to trade their cool shit. Chicago is actively tanking. They're starting to trade their cool shit, like Robert Quinn. Washington should be actively tanking, but they have a dumbass, like, three-game win streak right now, thanks to Taylor Heineke. So, the teams that are in the next group, Pittsburgh, New Orleans, the Raiders, teams that are just bad and aren't going to make the playoffs this year, I would even throw Arizona in this mix a little bit, um... Those teams should be trying to trade their best pieces. By the way, the Broncos, too, are in this camp, and I am hesitant to do trade analysis stuff because, you know, by Tuesday the trade deadline will be done and all this information will be uh, not aging well. So on a macro-level point, the Saints, the Cardinals, the Colts, the Raiders, the Steelers, like teams that are headed for picks 7 through 13 in the draft, those teams should look at what their options are on the open market. And Alvin Kamara is cool shit that a team would want. I know the Saints are saying that they are uh, hoping to get rumored the pick back from the Eagles in exchange for Kamara, which is never going to happen. The Eagles wouldn't give up a top 10 pick for Alvin Kamara. And the Saints are trying to get a package as good as Christian McCaffrey in order to trade Kamara. And I would say that the same situation plays out that I talked about before with the Broncos, which is you set a price, and if that price is met, you make the trade. Don't worry about whether you can make the playoffs, or don't worry about whether Alvin Kamara is a long-term piece of this team, because Alvin Kamara is still a really good running back. He's not as good as Alvin Kamara from three years ago. Even though the offense is technically ranked just as high since Andy Dalton took over as quarterback. But at the same time, Alvin Kamara has value. And so 
figure out what it is that you evaluate Alvin Kamara at, whether it's a first round pick, whether it's a first plus additional picks, maybe it's a player and picks, whatever you evaluate Alvin Kamara at, set that price and don't be afraid to trade it. Because the Saints are in this really tempting place where they can get value at the quarterback position. Jameis Winston ain't going to be on the team after this year. If Andy Dalton's already taken his starting job, Jameis is not going to be on the team after this season. And they are playing the game of we can get value at the quarterback position in order to give Michael Thomas a big contract, give Alvin Kamara a big contract. Those are the pieces that are going to build an offense that might be built around Andy Dalton. It might be built around one of these rookie quarterbacks or these cheap backup like fringe starters like Bridgewater or Andy Dalton. We're going to play value at the quarterback position for the time being. And what trading Alvin Kamara or trading Michael Thomas opens the door for is a chance to reconstruct and reconfigure the roster. Because what exists right now for the Saints is the remnants of the team from two years ago. That's what the Saints look like right now is young players like Davenport and Peyton Turner and Chris Olave, who are all former first round picks that they did a great job of evaluating and developing with guys who are holdovers from a team that used to be one of the three best in the league with Drew Brees and Sean Payton being the competitive advantage that went away for the Saints. And so now that those guys don't have value, they can either continue with the current iteration of the team that, again, the offense has totally outperformed, I think, most people's expectations, having them be a top five offense with uh, ever since Andy Dalton took over in week three, having a top five to seven offense was not something expected from the Saints. Because even myself, who said at the start of the year, I have no idea what to do with the Saints offense, just no idea how to evaluate them. Because they were coming back with Thomas, who hadn't played in two seasons, Alave, who had never played an NFL snap, Jarvis Landry, coming off of a full season worth of injuries. They had Jameis Winston, who was coming off of a torn ACL. Just no idea how to, uh, again, new play caller because uh, Sean Payton retired. Like, just no idea how to evaluate the Saints offense. And I still don't, I, I mean, I know how to evaluate the Saints offense because I know that they're, that Chris Olave is a stud now. I do know, I do have enough sample size to know Chris Olave is maybe the best of the rookie receivers. And that Alvin Kamara is still a very, very good running back, making a lot of money. Not as much as he should be making, but making a lot of money nonetheless. And Alvin Kamara is really, really good, and Chris Olave is really, really good. And because they've put a great offensive line and weapons, Andy Dalton looks kind of like what Tua looks like with the Miami Dolphins. And so I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking they're going to play value at the quarterback position. And I could see how that roster would come together for this season and next season. I'm also looking at it and I'm saying if you can get ideal value, this is this is the core of your team and we know it's not good enough. This this is the core of your team and we know it's not going to be good enough to compete at the highest levels. Does that mean strip the whole thing down and try again? Does it mean doing a halfway thing where you trade Camara just so you can get the best value possible? It's an interesting situation and I'm really fascinated to see what happens with the Saints by the time we come back in like three weeks. Not just who's on the team, but also the way that the team has kind of changed the way that they play. Because now it seems like it's going to be a team built on the offensive side of the ball that's going to need to address defensive efficiencies over the offseason. I feel like I have a more clear picture about the Saints, 
and I'm not exactly sure what the best course of action is. So I'm interested to see which course of action they choose, uh, not just in the next day because of the trade deadline, but also over the next few weeks as they kind of build out whatever is left of that team. And and they're, again, kind of in the mix where they're going to be like fighting for the seventh wild card just like last year. It, I'm just interested to see what they build out over the next few weeks because the Saints are just such a an intriguing mystery to me similar to what we talked about with Pittsburgh they're an intriguing mystery to me because that defense can shut out the Raiders it also gives up 40 points to Arizona and I know two of them were on pick sixes so they really gave up four touchdowns to Arizona but nobody has given up four touchdowns to Arizona so far this season or you know if you want the the flip side example for the Saints because I know I'm just picking the most recent results and that's the the lazy way to do that you could go back and say hey the Bengals looked really good torching them the week before that you could go back to the Falcons putting up all those points to start the season you could go back to the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers scoring their second highest point total of the season or Geno Smith putting up 32 but if their offense puts up 39 they can beat the Seahawks like you can look at that and say okay yeah Saints defense not really as good as we thought they were their their DVOA ranking without this week in in the books so just acknowledging that this is not the most most accurate data because they haven't uh, factored in the game that they just had where they literally shut out the the Las Vegas Raiders. The Saints were 22nd in DVOA coming into this week uh, defensively, and if they're the 22nd ranked defense and a top seven offense, it's kind of the flip side of last year, but they kind of get the same results. So again, I'm interested to see what becomes of the Saints over the next four weeks, maybe similar to what we did with the Steelers. We'll check in after week 12 and see what has become of the Saints. Garoppolo drops back to throw. You're gonna lose the game. The seasons come and seasons go. The Niners need a change. If you don't throw check downs, you're gonna take a sack. Jimmy G is warming up. Yeah, he's your quarterback. No, don't throw it. Interceptions drive us all insane. Phones are calling. Ron Rivera wants to make a trade. If a rookie QB isn't in your plans, just call San Francisco up. They got your quarterback. They say he's smart, and he wins games. That don't mean a thing. If since week one, Trey Lance had played, the 49ers would have had a ring. If your team's rebuilding talent's what you lack, 
Trade two picks for Jimmy G. Now he's your quarterback. All right. I know I said at the start of the show that I uh, did, wasn't going to talk about the 49ers, but I was recording that in the middle of the 49ers game, and then uh, I saw what happened at the end, and I do want to talk about the 49ers just briefly. Not really a macro-level conversation about the 49ers, but just kind of talking about Christian McCaffrey a bit, because that entire offense seems like it's going to start to run through Christian McCaffrey. It's going to be a really, really interesting way that this goes for the San Francisco 49ers. And Christian McCaffrey had a passing touchdown, rushing touchdown, and receiving touchdown, which is a fun statistical anomaly. I'm like, hey, they literally want their entire offense to run through Christian McCaffrey. But in actuality, Christian McCaffrey ended up having 18 touches running the football. The 49ers only ran, uh, again, 14 rushes on the game. That's, uh, sorry, start that again. Christian McCaffrey had 18 rushing touches and nine targets in the receiving game. So if you want to add those two together, 27 targets for Christian McCaffrey. The 49ers ran a total of 48 offensive plays. 48 offensive plays that resulted in some sort of outcome. That doesn't include sacks which uh, I don't know. Let's see, how many sacks did the Rams have in this game? The Rams had one sack, so they ran actually exactly 50 plays of offense. The 49ers ran 50 plays of offense. 27 of them involved Christian McCaffrey. That is a 27 out of 50 number. If you do quick math there, 54% of the offensive plays for the for the, the 49ers ran through Christian McCaffrey. That's the same level of involvement that the Rams have used Cooper Cup for during the past two seasons. Cooper Cup hangs around 46% average uh, in terms of play usage. Justin Jefferson hangs around 37 to 40%, which is a little bit of a wide gap. When we're talking about hundreds of plays, that's, that's a kind of big gap. But Justin Jefferson hangs around the 37 to 40% usage rate in terms of touches. They don't use him as much in the rushing game as, say, uh, the the Rams do with Cooper Cup. But that's a huge usage rate for Christian McCaffrey. And I saw that the 49ers were talking about trading Jeff Wilson, and I look at that, I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. That's a great idea to see what value he's going to command because Jeff Wilson's value only goes down from here, but it's not like he's an asset that has a ton of value. Like, no one's giving up more than, like, a fourth-round pick for Jeff Wilson, I would assume. And... I thought that was a genius idea on their part because I'm like, oh, this is going to be a Christian McCaffrey show. This offense is going to be built around Christian McCaffrey. It's going to be run through Christian McCaffrey. Jeff Wilson holds more value in draft picks than he does as the backup running back for the 49ers because the 49ers plan to use Christian McCaffrey consistently. And I know this is the same goddamn argument that we used for Jimmy Garoppolo. The same exact goddamn argument. And then, lo and behold, Trey Lance was the guy who suffered the catastrophic injury. And so Garoppolo could be the backup, or the high-end backup 
for the San Francisco 49ers, who then pushes the 49ers to trade for Christian McCaffrey because they know that they need a better running game because Lord knows Jimmy Garoppolo needs that run game support. And uh, we're starting to learn, even though we don't have a sample size, Trey Lance might need that run game support as well. We don't know about Trey Lance. We do know Jimmy Garoppolo needs that run game support. And so that's why the 49ers went out and traded for Christian McCaffrey. And I'm so interested by how they're going to go about this because, again, it's a really high usage rate. We need more than one game of sample size to build it out. I was just interested by the way the 49ers decided to use Christian McCaffrey, not just because he had a passing touchdown and a rushing touchdown and a receiving touchdown, but because he was used on 54% of their offensive plays, uh, he got either a touch rushing or a touch receiving, which is really interesting because that puts him in the Cooper Cup Justin Jefferson tier of high usage rates. I wonder what A.J. Browns is as well for the Eagles. I'd have to look up sample size on that. I just know... Cup and Jefferson among receivers are the two highest in terms of usage rate. I'm guessing Derrick Henry today had something similar to that. Let's see what Derrick Henry's touch rate was in a dominant win over the Texans. It was, let's see, 50, well, we'll see how many sacks there were here. Working this out on the air. Let's do it. Uh, Did the Texans get any sacks today? They did not get no they got one sack Steven Nelson got one sack so good on him they they got one sack as a team so that's 56 plays 32 through Derrick Henry that is a 60 about 60 percent usage rate for Derrick Henry today that's yeah 32 plays out of 55 that is a ridiculously high usage rate for Derrick Henry and the Titans. Let's see what the exact number is, because I'm sure it's pretty comparable to um, what Christian McCaffrey had. 57%. So 57% of the Titans plays went through Derrick Henry. 54% of the 49ers plays went through Christian McCaffrey. And it was painfully clear the Titans were just exclusively using Derrick Henry because there was nothing the, te- the Texans could do to stop them. Basically the same usage rates between the two. And if that's the way the 49ers are going to run it, one, see if you can trade Jeff Wilson, and two, I'm interested to see what Kyle Shanahan does over the next eight weeks. Because once we build out a larger sample size of Christian McCaffrey on the 49ers, and again, I said at the very beginning, like great process results will take a lot of time to know. We need a large sample size to know how this is going to work because, yeah, Kyle Shanahan's never built running games around one star running back he want he likes the multiple running back variations he's also never had a running back as good as Christian McCaffrey so sometimes your play calling and skill set is based out of necessity obviously over seven years you start to realize that Kyle Shanahan has a type when it comes to building out running backs but now that he has a star running back let's see if he changes his ways and adapts to the roster that he has it's going to take a long time to figure that out probably months of sample size from what we know so far, it seems like the the intention is to have Christian McCaffrey have the same levels of usage rate as like Derrick Henry or last year's Austin Eckler or Cooper Cup with the Rams. Even though Cooper Cup's out for six weeks now and the Rams are totally screwed if that's the case because you've already got broken Matthew Stafford checking down the entire game. If you take away Cooper Cup, Rams got no shot. No shot. All right, everybody. 
it is time for us to award the Week 8 Philip Rivers Memorial Kirk Cousins Purgatory Award, which for those of you who are new to the show is, as always, a celebration of the teams who find themselves down six, no timeouts, needing to go 75 yards with one minute left to go, as Philip Rivers spent 15 years building a Hall of Fame career doing, and as Philip, as Kirk Cousins has taken the mantle from him in his retirement as the quarterback who always finds himself down six, one minute to play, no timeouts, needing to go 75 yards. Sometimes they win, sometimes they lose, but it's always that situation. Ironically, this week's award goes to someone who was playing the Minnesota Vikings. It was Kyler Murray. It was the Arizona Cardinals. The Cardinals were down eight with a minute 30 to go, no timeouts, needing to go 85 yards. And that's pretty damn close to being in Kirk Cousins' purgatory against Kirk Cousins. That is a really low place to find yourself, but Arizona was there. Kyler Murray had a magical Kirk Cousins purgatory drive, just magical, where Kyler Murray went scramble to his right, out of the pocket, bullet pass 20 yards to DeAndre Hopkins. Just an amazing play. They said it on the broadcast, like only Kyler Murray and maybe one or two other quarterbacks could make that play. It's the reason Kyler Murray got paid $200 million by the Arizona Cardinals, is he can make that incredible play on third and long in order to keep your game alive. And what happened on the next two plays? It was Kyler Murray took a sack, and offensive protection breaks down on the last play of the game. Kyler Murray escapes the sack, but gets tripped up and falls to the ground, and the Cardinals don't even get a Hail Mary chance with DeAndre Hopkins, like what happened with the Buffalo Bills a couple years ago. Arizona lost, but the more important point was that Kyler Murray had a magical Kirk Cousins purgatory drive. We also have to acknowledge that there are two Kirk Cousins purgatory situations this week and two awards to hand out. The second one is the absolute fucking bullshit that went down between the Carolina Panthers and the Atlanta Falcons because holy shit that game was stupid um you have the Atlanta Falcons completing a 30 uh, no it was a 50 yard touchdown to go up 31 28 then the Panthers turn the ball over the Falcons can't run out the clock but kick a field goal with 40 seconds to play so you have a true Kirk Cousins purgatory situation six points 40 seconds no timeouts 75 yards to go and the Atlanta Falcons defense cannot prevent DJ Moore from torching both of their safeties for a touchdown. Play as many two high safeties as you need. Play as many quarterbacks corners in zone. Just don't let him get the deep ball. By the way, I forgot to mention from the Vikings game, the Vikings had to miss a PAT, an extra point, in order to keep the Kirk Cousins purgatory situation alive, which was Kirk Cousins' way of saying, I'm not going to win this game without putting the other quarterback in Kirk Cousins' purgatory. Because again, the Vikings could have made an extra point after the Osborne touchdown, and it would have been nine-point game, no chance the Cardinals can come back. Fuck that, we're going to miss the extra point, make it a one-score game, and put Arizona in Kirk Cousins' purgatory. The reason I just remembered that is because after DJ Moore scores a touchdown with 12 seconds to play, where he burns both of the Falcons' safeties on like a virtual Hail Mary, the Panthers miss the game-winning PAT. 
They they just needed the extra point to win the game. Nope, they're going to miss it. They completed Kirk Cousins' purgatory. They pulled off the absolute bullshit as like the honorary lions that they are of going down the field in 40 seconds with no timeouts against the Falcons. They just pulled off the most bullshit out of their ass comeback, missed the extra point. The Falcons get the ball first in overtime, and the Panthers intercept the Falcons, return it to the Falcons' 25-yard line, miss the game-winning field goal again, and lose to Atlanta 37-34. Just the most absolute fucking bullshit loss for Carolina that I have seen. And also a bullshit win for the Falcons because the Falcons should have won that game pretty easily. They just had to pick up a first down. Couldn't do it. It game. It was so stupid. And thank you. Thank you, Atlanta, for coming back into our lives in the way that you have. Because, oh my God, it was just magical, magical to watch you pull off that shit again. So thank you for both of our Kirk Cousins purgatory situations this week. Kylo Murray and PJ Walker both had dramatically different finishes, dramatically different bullshit ways of desperation losing, but you both of you deserve the Kirk Cousins purgatory award this week because y'all, both of those games ended on just absolutely magnificent, magnificently bad football from all parties involved. Arizona, the card, uh, Arizona Cardinals, Minnesota Vikings, Detroit, just, uh, I'm sorry, not Detroit, Carolina, Atlanta, Carolina to Detroit are basically the same. Carolina, Atlanta, just magnificent bullshit to end those games. You both deserve Kirk Cousins Purgatory Awards for this week. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to our NFL Monday podcast. We will have more podcasts coming at you this week, including our beloved Morgan from Australia joining us tomorrow. Make sure to leave a five-star review, download all that good stuff, and as always, take it easy. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.